Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Now, Andrew, we're here to talk uh, primarily around factor investing, but I think what would be most interesting is to start with a little bit about your background and uh, you know where you are today. So uh, I have a little bit of a non-traditional background for um, an investor. I was a professor of finance at Columbia University for 16 years, and then I joined BlackRock, and I really wanted to make a difference in the real world and see this research put into action in actual portfolios. So I came to BlackRock, which and uh, my current title is uh, Head of Factors, Sustainable and Solutions. So what was your area of academic focus at Columbia? Well, the academic area or the paradigm today is all about factor investing. Mm. It's these broad, persistent drivers of returns that uh, influence public markets, and also even private markets. And uh, we want to see these large commonalities that are priced that uh, actually have returns or rewards uh, associated with them. And that makes them uh, relevant for investor portfolios. Has it always been that factor investing has been a very lucrative way of investing going back decades? Well, this is what I think is um, the interesting thing is that they've always been with us. I think the great investors have always wanted to look for bargains. They've wanted to identify and participate in trends. We call those value and momentum. We want high quality companies. We would prefer companies that are smaller and more nimble or low size. And then uh, finally, we want to gravitate to safety, which we can do in minimum volatility strategies. So all of those things, I think, are new. But what the difference is, is investors can allocate to them directly today in a way that wasn't possible a few decades ago. When I was growing up, I remember these uh, actual cassette tapes. <laughs> Me and, too. <laughs> uh, you know, we had these uh, uh, records and LPs, and you had to buy the entire um, LP, right? You, you might only listen to one or two tracks, but you had to get the whole thing. Hmm. And what's really happened today is that you can watch anything whenever you want to, at whatever time. And you can watch videos, you can listen to music, you can engage how you want to. Before, we had to package all of these market or index returns together with factors and Mm -hmm. together with the pure alpha components. You had to buy the entire album. And what's happened today, I think, is that uh, you don't need to buy the entire album. You can create the playlist that you want right for you. And if you're uh, feeling a little down and you want a little song to cheer you up or you want to celebrate something, uh, you want a romantic mood. Well, now with ETFs and all these other investment vehicles that with unbundled index and factors and the true alpha seeking components above or in excess of index and factors, we can actually create our own playlist for our portfolios. Okay, so we're the, we're the one make, making the album now. We don't have to buy the one that somebody else made for and us. And I think it's it's really democratized access to right. these sources of returns, these these broad and persistent drivers of uh, value, momentum, quality, minimum volatility, and and small size. And then we can also better identify the true alpha opportunities in excess of these broad and persistent factor returns. How does factor investing fit into active versus passive? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think actually any type of investing is active. Mm. It's just to greater or lesser degrees. But even Mm. creating an index, you have to make choices about the weights, about what uh, securities should be in there. How often you revise that Liquidity index. constraints. Liquidity constraints, um, free float. Uh, I, all those are active decisions and just rebalancing to 
track that index is also um, involves active uh, decisions. So mm. we can't track it 100% or completely at every single uh, point in time. But one of the great things about indices is that they're transparent mm. and you know what you're getting. There's a rules book. And so you know exactly what it's doing, what's in there and why it works. And sometimes I think even more importantly, when it doesn't work mm. and fully understanding that. So that I think is all the great benefits for factors is that we can buy the cheap stocks. You define how you define exactly how cheap with different metrics, book to market ratios, earnings to price. You can create um, a rebalancing rule of how these uh, cheap stocks would exit the portfolio once they become expensive. Mm. Uh, all of those benefits for transparency, then therefore we can also reflect in low costs, low mm. expenses. And then we can also implement these in very convenient vehicles like ETFs. So those are all the benefits for indexing and transparency. But you know, are these active strategies? Are we deviating from the market? Of course we are. We're actually seeking out the cheaper stocks relative to the market. We're seeking out those stocks that are trending up rather than those stocks that are trending down. So those are active uh, investment decisions. So walk us through the specific factors and, and what exactly or how exactly you define them. Intuitively, they um, have much more in common across industry than differences. But there are some implementation choices that each provider will have to, to make. Mm. But value at its heart is looking at low price stocks. Price to book specifically or just whatever price to earnings? Yeah, exactly. So mm. um, we can observe prices, but uh, you'd have to proxy fundamental uh, value. So sometimes you could take that as book value, but mm. we could also take it as the amount of earnings a, a company would generate. Mm. Perhaps I actually would like something more solid and actually look at cash flows themselves, particularly cash flow from operations. Mm. So these are all metrics that originally date back to a book written in 1934 by two accounting professors, Graham and Dodd. They were actually professors of my institution that I taught at for many years, Columbia University. Mm. So these have decades worth, almost you know, 100 years of, of history. But we can also take more proprietary definitions if you're thinking about fundamental value, a lot of uh, value in company today, it's not reflected on balance sheets or earnings uh, statements. So we might look at some intangible measures. We like in our proprietary formulations, patents. Patents are valuable. Mm. Uh, you can buy them, you can sell them, you can license them, but they don't usually appear on balance sheets. They're the result of a lot of culmination of, of research and development. And so you can look at these uh, unstructured or alternative uh, data sets uh, as well. They, they, they range the, the gamut. Um, Andrew, you mentioned indices just now and the fact that there's a sort of implicit active decision made with indices in terms of market cap weighting, liquidity and things. How efficient are indices at representing the business economy that they do? And another part to that question is, to what extent is an indice just naturally a momentum play? I mean, right now we're in 2023, we're seeing these companies get so, some of these companies get so big that they make up such a big part of these indices that, you know, the bigger they get, the more effect they have on the index itself. And it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you could talk a little bit about those two things. Yeah. So the first one, uh, which was basically looking at uh, what's actually in the market compared mm. to what's in the real economy. And there are some differences, but the bulk of uh, market activity in the economy in the US and certainly absolutely uh, in, the, uh, in the world, most of it is actually private rather than public. Yeah. And so it's not surprising that the 
profile of the publicly traded securities, they actually look different from mm. the the bulk of the mainstream uh, economy. Yeah, good right? And so there are sector biases. There's a lot more tech that we see in listed companies than we uh, see in uh, the real economy. And you actually might think about uh, of an investment strategy that looks at the differences between those two, what's actually traded in the market versus mm. a proper reflection of the uh, underlying economic activity. And yeah. uh, some researchers have have actually uh, done that. Yeah, I'd never thought about it before, but where I'm from in the UK, I mean, our entire health service is effectively nationalized, um, unlike the US where so much of it is um, is not. So yeah, it's, I mean, I'd never thought of it before, but it makes so much sense. And um, uh, I think you can go a little bit further than that as well. So it's not only the industries or the sectors these uh, companies have, but uh, internationally, though, there will be uh, differences uh, as well. I think companies, they tend to go public much earlier in mm. the United States. Now we have actually have a, a lot more listings of IPOs, uh, especially in China and um, some of the other uh, emerging markets. But you need to be a pretty established company, mm. right, to actually be a publicly traded company, even by definition, to actually being able to list on some of those exchanges. So uh, that also means that I think a lot of private markets and public markets, you certainly can have public market equivalents of these private industries, but they're going to look a little different than mm. a pure vanilla market cap based index of, uh, of public companies. And how about to the extent that indices are really momentum plays and whether they should indeed be such momentum plays? Yeah, that's a great question, too. And um, there certainly is a, a underlying question behind that is, well, if you think about value, momentum, quality, size, minimum volatility, and these are broad and persistent effects that we see in public and private markets and equities and bonds. Well, actually, what's the factor decomposition of the market, major market benchmarks themselves? Right? How much value does the S&P actually have? Mm -hmm. Or what's the factor makeup? How much momentum does the UK portfolio have? That's a great question. I wrote a paper published in the uh, Journal of Portfolio Management examining exactly this question. And in the United States, the United States tends to have more momentum characteristics mm -hmm. than in other markets. Perhaps that's not surprising. You think about the uh, risk-tolerant, very gung-ho, enthusiastic uh, it's, American it's a, investor. A it's a cultural thing as well, yeah. I think. And then you know. um, if you look at Europe, Europe actually has uh, a lot more value and quality. And Asia will, again, be, be different. But just the fact that uh, it's actually in the index, yes, there are some slight biases uh, for momentum effects and for, I think, growth versus value tends to be much more counter-cyclical uh, compared to these companies for, for growth effects. But overall, um, these uh, are far better than not having them. Yeah. And there, there's a reason why we think about major market benchmarks, because essentially we can get them almost for free in our portfolios. And then that's a natural benchmark for any active deviation. If we do want to buy cheap or find trends or find high quality companies, then we can measure ourselves appropriately against something that essentially has uh, close to zero cost. Um, you mentioned just now, or we were talking um, about differences in culture internationally. To what extent does factor investing work internationally? Can you even use factor investing internationally? I think in some respects, uh, these are actually even greater opportunities mm. uh, internationally than in uh, developed uh, markets. And I think the next frontier is also even looking at these factors in fixed income and some of these other asset mm. classes. You can buy cheap and buy high quality bonds just as you can buy cheap and 
high quality equity securities. So there are some differences though, um, and you have to tailor some of these factor definitions to each market. One important um, stylized factor is that uh, momentum turns out to be a fairly weak effect. In fact, it can actually go the other way than developed markets in Asia, uh, particularly in China and, and Japan. Price momentum in those markets mostly hasn't worked, but there are other forms of momentum, fundamental momentum, factor mm. momentum even, that are effective in, in those uh, markets. Because emerging markets have um, higher volatility on average than the volatilities of uh, developed market companies, minimum volatility strategies, I think, are particularly effective uh, in emerging markets. Mm. Minimum volatility strategies, well, by their name, you're going to reduce your volatility. But over long periods of time, and this is some of my work that uh, I published with other co-authors in the Journal of Finance um, in the uh, early 2000s, uh, these low volatility companies have approximately the same returns as the market portfolio. So over time, you actually will track the market mm. uh, over long cycles, but you're going to do that with reduced volatility. And because companies in emerging markets have, as expected, much higher volatility than companies in developed markets, the potential for risk reduction actually is much more um, is much greater mm. uh, for minimum volatility strategies in, in emerging markets compared to developed markets. So I wanted to ask about um, market environment. When it comes to factor investing, is the idea that you have allocation to each one of the factors and you should be pulling those levers as you see fit? Or is it that you're sort of more recommending that you should follow, use factor investing to invest in one theme? So I think you're better off investing in a balanced portfolio right, okay. over all factors and have that really as the core part of your portfolio. I think over the long run, we do want value, momentum, high quality companies. Um, you know, those should form the basis of a core um, portfolio holding. But Around that, one might think about uh, tactically or dynamically shifting those factor exposures. And here, I think single factor types of strategies are quite useful. So generally, if we're in a downturn or a late economic environment or a recession, mm. then you prefer the more defensive factors, particularly quality and minimum volatility. So they give you um, this uh, payoff um, that tends to perform well during uh, these uh uh, relatively poor economic conditions. In the very early part of the economic cycle, pro-cyclical factors like uh, small stocks mm -hmm. and uh, value strategies, those tend to do better. If we're in late cycle, then the trends have been established in the economy, and so momentum strategies tend to fare well. So if you're looking at um, around your core, then potentially these factor rotation or factor tilting strategies, they may be important too. Angie, there's quite a decent debate going on right now between value and growth. If you're like me and got it completely wrong, uh, we all thought this was going to be the era for value investing. And yet here we are. Uh, and some of these growth stocks are, are performing incredibly well. Where do you sit on that side of the debate? Yes. That, so value has undergone its worst drawdown ever in terms of the magnitude of the loss and also the duration of that loss and it started in 2018. Mm. Uh, in some value point. formulations, really, <clears throat> you can even start earlier in 2017. Now, what's very interesting is this uh, entire episodes from um, 2018 to today can be split into three parts. So we were very late cycle in 2018 and 2019. Now, it's a 
slightly different conversation to say why that cycle was so prolonged. Mm. But if we had cut it at the end of 2019, then value would have underperformed, but it would not have been the worst episode mm. for value. In fact, there were, one of the examples is the late 1990s. And during that period, uh, value underperformed worse than if we actually had our current drawdown and we cut it at, at the end of uh, 2019. Mm. The second leg is the atrocious part of uh, value performance. And that was 2020 when we entered the COVID year. And I said that value tends to perform at its best in reopening. We get uh, underperformance in late economic cycles and in recessions and, um, and drawdowns. Now, value stocks tend to have a lot of physical capital. And the physical capital means that you can get these operating leverage or or economies of scale that really help you at the reopening. But during these downturns in 2020, I mean, we're in COVID. It's like this really is this extraordinary shock. Mm. And these companies with a lot of physical capital, well, you can't have any more physical interaction. So it's not surprising that value had devastating uh, year in, uh, in 2020. Now, the turning point is actually at the end of that year, November 2020. We're still in lockdown and socially distancing around the world in many places, but we received news that there was uh, an effective vaccine, the first one uh, in that month, Pfizer. Now, subsequently, we've had lots and lots of uh, vaccines. Markets are forward-looking. There is now a way back to normalcy, mm -hmm. and where we we then you know begin our reopening, and that's when actually value starts to take off. Value performed extremely well in 2021 and 2022 as things got back to normal. wasn't wasn't linear. There were some variants like a Delta and Omicron that came on, and so you can see these wobbles in value. Nevertheless, there's still quite a ways to go mm -hmm. before we hit where we started uh, that that value uh, drawdown. What do you think is the biggest driver of the stock market over the next? six to 12 months. I, I see people talk about the fact that you just need to look at the size of the, the Fed's balance sheet. And basically, as it expands, that will just take asset pressures with it. Others say, well, if the Fed keeps tightening towards the end of the year, then that's going to bring markets down. What are the things that people need to be focused on when deciding where to, how to allocate them, their money? Well, I think over the, not only over the next year, but I think over the next five to 10 years, this is now the era of the return. It's like the you know, empire strikes back. Yeah. It's the return of macro risk. Right. right? And factors, these are long-term um, rewarded sources of or drivers uh, of return. And macro risk is, well, you get compensated uh, for bearing that risk. Some examples. So inflation is now back. You know, the great moderation is over. Okay, inflation, we might have reached peak inflation, but uh, I think we still have some ways to go before we go back to it's not going to it's below. not going to low single digit. We're going to ha hang around. I, I think so, and um, and that that's a change. It really is a change from um, the period from the 1980s to you know the uh, to to 2020. I also think that there are three things that have also changed today compared to previous decades that will lead to a higher inflation uh, environment. We see extreme weather, right? All mm. of the build back for destructive effects of, of extreme weather, all That's of that is inflationary, Yeah. right? I, I don't think we're going to go to a deglobalized world, but I think the gains for further globalization probably muted mm -hmm. um, or very close to zero. And so 
building robustness into supply chains, the reshoring uh, elements that are, are now happening, those are inflationary tendencies as well. And then finally, there is some debate on this, but um, researchers like Charles Goodhart uh, uh, would say that uh, aging populations, those tend to be inflationary. In his uh, summary, basically, you would have uh, larger proportions of retired people, retired people they consume, but they don't produce. Right. And so therefore, those tend to be the higher proportions. There's an inflationary effect. So inflation, I think it's going to be with us. Real rates, I think this was the big unsung um, event for uh, 2022. Yes, we had markets come down by 15 to 20% in equities and bonds. But one of the other big developments was that we saw the real interest rates uh, change from minus one, minus one and a half to now plus one and a half, yeah. you know, plus two. Those were massive changes, yeah. right? And so we have positive real rates uh, now. Discount rates are back, uh, you know, associated with all of those. There's much more uncertainty. We're, we're going away from quantitative easing, mm -hmm. right? The Fed will shrink its balance sheets. There are very large government deficits now worldwide, but certainly we have the highest uh, GDP to uh, our debt to GDP ratios since uh, World War II in yeah. the United States. Macro risk is back. Right. And all of that, I think, sets the stage for a lot of these um, factor or style factor uh, risk premiums. Final question, Andrew. Um, I just feel looming over all of this is the topic of AI and how deflationary it could be. Do you have a particular view on the impact that AI could have? Because typically innovative tech is quite disinflationary. Where do you sit on that? Well, I think it's not so much, at least this is my opinion, for being uh, an effect for deflation, but uh, I think we will see large productivity gains. In fact, okay. we'll all be better off. There will be the flip side of that. There'll be some unfortunate uh, increases in inequality, and we do need to address those. Mm. But I, I want to say that uh, factor investing has always been at the forefront of incorporating the latest data and the latest uh, quantitative techniques. So we started off, I mentioned, in 1934 <clears throat> with Graham and Dodd, right? No one actually looked systematically mm. at these companies, even for something as simple as a book-to-market ratio. They were the first ones. Factor investing were at the forefront of using uh, financial reports, all these balance sheets and earnings um, statements in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, that was the big data of its time. Mm. Right? And then we looked at all the development of indexing with all the data that's used there in the 1990s that kind of really became widespread. I think AI and machine learning, this is just the latest incarnation. But we've been using these techniques for quite some time in our proprietary definitions of factors. And I'll just give one example corporate culture. So this was one of the best performing signals for our proprietary factors. And we treat it as a form of quality. It's a non-financial measure of quality. It was one of the best performers during our COVID years of 2020 and 2021. And we use an algorithm called uh, embedding, word embedding, to develop a dictionary over a training sample of words related to corporate culture. Wow. And then with that dictionary, we, then, we can then analyze uh, conference call information. And after the machine has done that, uh, we've now got a quantitative score for a concept that tends to be much more qualitative uh, in nature. You know, we're pushing now with large language models like ChatGPT for versions of sentiment, but we've always wanted to uh, get the best data and the best uh, quantitative mm. techniques to bring all of these uh, sources of returns to um, to people's portfolios. Pioneering stuff, Andrew. Uh, listen, Andrew, this has been such an insightful and interesting conversation. I want to say thanks for your time. Thank you.